here we go. Deck 78. Well, we're back here on Deck 78, and this is a special Deck 78 430 movie crossover, and it wouldn't be the 430 movie without a very special guest at our table. Of course, I'm talking about the legendary writer of uh, such shows as uh, Batman Brave and the Bold, Star Wars Rebels, Star Wars The Clone Wars, and uh, Dota the Doga... Doga! 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 Dota Dragon's Breath, none other... And than... Big Guy and Rusty the Boy Robot. Yes, and, <laughs> yes that. And and uh, uh, it's the great Steve Melching is with us. Stephen Melching, welcome aboard. I'm happy to be here. I noticed that we did some kind of uh, crazy slingshot maneuver around the sun a little while ago. I'm curious as to what that's about. Yeah, uh, well, you'll, you'll find out. We're going back in time in the DeLorean pretty... to the 1980s. <laughs> the 1980s. Tell me, Doctor, where are we going this time? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have, have, have read the new, uh, and it's okay if you haven't, the new book by Quentin Tarantino. Well, for, um, for, first, we have Ashley Edward Miller and Darren Dockerman with us. Oh, yeah, that's I true. Know. We're here as well. Aren't <laughs> I, I know. I, I, I can see you on the way here to Deck 78. You can Nobody see, but no one else can. <laughs> they, they, they expect you to be here. They know that you're that you're you're the resident barfly that you uh -huh. hang out at Deck 78 every week. You're on the show. The only people, the only two people that have actually been on the show every week are you and Ashley. So I think people can expect that even I was not on a, one of the episodes. We did the RoboCop episode without Mark. It was like our best episode. So if anything, I'm going to introduce myself. Hello, I'm Mark Gale, and I'm happy to be joining Darren and Steve here on Deck 78. Showrunner of the CW show Pandora. Indeed. And uh, author of many best-selling oral histories. Um, but today we're here, we're here because... um. Uh, Quentin Tarantino came out with his first nonfiction book called Cinema Speculation. It's a <laughs> delightful um, uh, uh, visit to um, the films of his youth. Um, I actually had, I think we've talked on Trexperts of 4 Movie. I found his um, quote unquote novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a really terrific read. Um, uh, yeah. Cinema Speculation um, is different. Um, although you could say it's just as fictional. Um, uh, but uh, the thing, the reason that we're talking about it today is not so much to talk about the book, but a contention that Quentin uh, uh, makes in the book. He talks about the 1950s and 1980s being the worst year for movies. Now, we're going to focus on, uh, uh, I think we have a problem with that. Obviously, he is a big uh, fan of 70s cinema, as we are. Um, but, um, you know, to say that the 80s somehow is worse than the 90s or the aughts or now. Yeah, it, it's, it's just it's, uh, ludicrous. It's ludicrous. ludicrous. So Impossible. We make, Meaningless. We, we well, make, did, but did, didn't he say that uh, the, those decades of the 50s and 80s may only be matched by the present day? In terms in, of badness. in terms of yes, he did say that. That is <laughs> that is that is that is very much correct. But that and, statement is also wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the, you know, this is coming from the guy who thinks Pretty Mates All in a Row is a terrific movie. The yeah. Gene Roddenberry uh, softcore MGM movie he did with Herb Solo for MGM, which is um, it's wonderful if you like Gene Roddenberry movies and. <laughs> 
you know, uh, uh, and are big Rock Hudson fans. There's not that many of them. If you like and, things that suck, you'll love Pretty Maids all in a row. And you want to see Jimmy Dewan and Bill <laughs> Campbell, William Campbell, Trelane as cops. Yeah, then that I'm is great. Out. But uh, if you actually want to see something that's semi-coherent and well-made, uh, then it's that pretty ain't it. <laughs> ain't it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, it's interesting because there's a wonderful article that I I, I, I found um, recently on the book uh, by Caitlin Quinlan in the Art Review. And while there, I certainly would quibble with some of her contentions, you know, there's the, 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 the boring uh, uh, accusations that, oh, he's only interested in uh you know the um the white direct the white directors and actors of his male actors of his youth like Steve McQueen and Clint Eastwood um well yeah I don't want to hear him writing about you know that's what he knows that's yeah. his world it's like I don't really uh um I, I don't want to I don't want to hear him talking about the uh, uh Indian cinema you know, uh, Correct. yeah, I mean, uh, you, you're hearing Quentin talk about the films of Satchel Ray are, yeah. is not going to be particularly compelling. No. Um, but more than that, uh, you know, it's interesting, but she, she's, she's critical of his, um, uh, the critical acumen that he displays that it's not very deep, that it's more of a memoir of, you know, the cinematic experiences that he had. Yeah. Um, what's the title of the book again? And uh, yeah, yeah, well, that's all true. But I, I, I do think that um, she makes a great point, which maybe isn't as relevant to, to what we're going to be discussing today. But I just want to share it with you because I, I thought she was so dead on in this article. She goes, uh, the problem with the exacerbated enthusiasm that surrounds fan culture and blockbuster movie watching today is not that fans and even working critics shouldn't be allowed to enjoy things. It's that in too large a dose within a critical context, there is no space for an engaged and cogent response to an art form. As the internet continues to democratize criticism by offering an open platform, the function of criticism, the ability to parse films, a film's construction, its ideas and visual choices for the purpose of relaying an interpretation to a curious readership has become waylaid. A love for the medium being critiqued must partner with a desire to see it upheld by careful and considered analysis that encourages bold and diverse conversation. As such, today it often is taken as a personal affront if someone dislikes a film you love rather than a chance for fulfilling discussion. This kind of conservative mindset, when it comes to film appreciation, the impulse to avoid challenges or flaws fosters the exact weaponization of feelings and fervor that makes such a contemporary film discourse intolerable. In relation to Tarantino's book, it is also antithetical to the ethos of the new Hollywood era he focuses on, which heralded invigorating rejection of the state filmmaking and conservative politics of earlier decades in the midst of the 60s counterculture. Anyway, the point that she's making, which I think is a good one, and we've seen a lot, is it used to be you could say to somebody, you know, I don't like that movie. And they say, well, I love it. And then you discuss it, right? Right. You know, now... Um, That's how we find out about things. Somebody yeah. says... That's where ideas begin. Somebody says, um, you know, uh, you know, oh, I, I, you know, I hate that movie. And it's like, oh, yeah. And, and, and people, you know, it's like they can't. I mean, we see it all the time on can't social have media. Can't you can't no. discuss. I mean, I was saying this to somebody today. I said, you know, here, here, because, you know, this is um, it's, it's become it's no secret that we've had a lot of fun with Star Trek three on Inglorious Trexperts. We, right. We've been very critical of it. We, we we poke fun at it. We we have a lot of puns because of we day, love it. 
and we can dislike it at the same time. That's right. I, part like our children. But part <laughs> of part part of it, it, it's almost like you want to poke the bear because people have a reaction to that criticism that's so out of proportion to what we're saying right. that you can't help but want to say things about why it doesn't work. And and you know, a critical analysis. At the end of the day, look, Star Trek Fun if three is a fun movie. You know, it, it, it it's it's not going to be on any of our worst lists. It's not, um, you know, we have legitimate criticisms of it. But, you know, I'm certainly not going to go to the mattresses and say, oh, Star Trek 3 is awful. But um, it's so funny to see the reaction that people have. I mean, we wrote something. It was something very funny on social media the other day about Star Trek. We wrote um, it was the 20th anniversary of Star Trek Nemesis. Right. And uh, so in order of it to celebrate its anniversary, we encourage you to watch any other Star Trek movie. <laughs> and 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 uh, and and, and uh, most people, you know, got it in the spirit it was intended, which was, you know, it was being funny, basically saying it's a terrible movie. You know what? And and, you know, but there were there was a couple of people. Both uh, of its fans that, came out of the woodwork. The, you know, they, they don't even, you know, don't take it. One one just said, fuck you, you, fuck you, you guys. <laughs> and I mean, and it, it, it was so. Tom Hardy, is that you? Yeah, right. Exactly. Or colorful and, metaphors. I think he would probably, I think Tom Hardy would probably agree with us. He yeah. would probably um, agree with us. Yes. But um, it was so, it, it, which I, I think what she's putting her finger on is, is, is such a great observation is that the discussion of movies and the ability to disagree um, is has it's getting lost. Everybody, you know, it's it, it's like the Scorsese um, uh, comments or Quentin's comments about Marvel movies, where they're just saying, you know, in our opinion, we don't see it as an art form. It doesn't mean they're not enjoyable. It doesn't mean they're not fun. We don't see it as art, right? And then people are like. Who the hell is a Scorsese guy? What you know? Why would we listen to him? What does he know? He's he's over the hill. You know? What does it's he like... know? He's only made uh, a bunch of amazing films that are classics. And even if you want to make the case and you believe that, um, uh, you know, these are superhero movies are great art, why should it upset you that someone disagrees? I, I, I mean, then. then well, you know... go ahead, I, I I wonder if it has something to do with um how in i would say over the last especially in the social media age since we're always throwing our ideas out into the world for everyone to hear rather than just a small circle of friends that our identities should or not <laughs> yes well our identities are getting more and more bound up in the things that we love combined with the sense that and and i include myself in in this that the the things that we grew up loving that were part of our childhood identities are still very much uh, uh, alive today and continuing right. to be made. Whereas maybe in generations past, the things that we grew up loving stayed in the past. Right. Uh, they don't persist into the present with, you know, the Star Trek that we grew up loving, you know, from the sixties that was repeated in the seventies, you know, if it were not perhaps for Star Wars might have died out and there would be no modern Star Trek, but uh, it persists to this day, you know, decades later with uh, with new fandoms coming in and old fandoms continuing to to get new material. Like none of these franchises that we grew up loving have really gone away. So they remain a part of our, you know, an active part of our identity. So when someone criticizes it, we might take it more personally than than we should otherwise. Well, that and, you know, it's a look, it's it's a it's an echo chamber. 
And the way that social media is designed, it's designed to reinforce whatever it is that that we think so that we get validation on the thing that we like and the thing that we don't like. And things that we like and don't like are the easiest, biggest, fastest dopamine hits. Plus, And the end result of that is tribalism. I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead, Darren. No, no. Uh, continuing with your thought, the the goal of these interviewers who interview people like Scorsese um, is to set up that class warfare, that ageism warfare, um, to uh, to get clicks on their stories. You know That's exactly right. It's like they're leveraging that particular culture, which is inherently confrontational because of how tribal it's become. And what has been lost is any capability to engage anything with real critical thought. Uh, there is no longer any sort of understanding of actual rhetoric, of actual argumentation. Um, now, things that were even, you know, it's funny because I, I, I hearken back to the Usenet flame wars of the 90s. And I've got my burn scars from that. Uh, <laughs> but even then, you know, we understood that, like, even the trolliest troll understood that the ad hominem attack, you know, was the was the lowest the, of the low. Yeah, the last bastion of the... Uh... Exactly. That the appeal to the expert, you right. know, that all of those <laughs> things that are now, like, it's the, it's the go-to. If you don't like something, it's because you hate something. Right. Um, if, and if you don't like a particular thing is because you're a hater of things um or the reason why you know it just everything comes back to you either love or you hate it's a very binary equation because those give you the biggest hits right so it's it kind of stuns me that that quentin in a way wades into that you know with the whole conversation about what are the best and the worst decades i mean yeah. He's an amazing filmmaker, and I think you know he's got such interesting taste. And I get that his vibe is very much in the seventies. It's very much into schlock, um, but also into great shit. Um, you know, it's like look, he he digs on you know uh, kung fu movies, and it's, it just there are things that are just so outside the mainstream, and that's awesome. And uh, and while I do think that uh, that Scorsese was largely misunderstood in the same way that I think that people are misunderstanding what Quentin is saying about Marvel films. It's interesting to me that the whole conversation about both of them keeps coming back to like, is he good or bad? Right. You know, I, it's like, what are they thinking? Go ahead. I, I just happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. And he says, <laughs> you're completely wrong. <laughs> I, I just am amazed how easily triggered people are. You know, it's like somebody says to me, you know, oh, Streets of Fire sucks. It's like, you know, I'm going to say, well, maybe it does, but I love it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, okay. So it, it, it's like, I don't, I, I just, the fact that people internalize and personalize these these criticisms. I mean, you know, Quentin says in his book, he, he says, oh, uh, Point Blank isn't half the movie that the outfit is. Now, I completely disagree with that i think point yes. blank is a much more a better movie than the outfit is um but i i'm not offended by it <laughs> you know i i, I don't think that his <laughs> his his, uh, uh, his opinion is rendered uh, irrelevant or moot by uh, you know holding that you know what this book doesn't have is kind of a deep exploration of what he's throwing out there so when he says that he doesn't do a very good job of articulating that point of view, he just sort of drops these 
quote unquote truth bombs or whatever, and then you know kind of moves on. It's it's very um, herky jerky, and it'll move from like, oh, if De Palma had directed this movie, what it would have been like <laughs> instead of uh, you it would know, have been a wonder. You know, so <laughs> well. The the thing is, uh, the the seventies in particular, um, certainly the first half of it, was one of the worst decades for the film business ever. Um, they they were at their lowest point in years uh, because of because <laughs> financially of the speaking, of television. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, financially speaking, the business of of movie making. Um, and uh, you know the the doldrums that 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 was in between the uh, '60s, the you know the uh, birth of uh, Easy Rider and the, uh, the quote unquote uh, uh, studio independent films um, that grew out of that proved to be one of the uh, worst uh, decades for people wanting to go to the movies. And it wasn't until later in the decade that it actually awakened. I mean, to, for uh, in Jaws in 1975, I mean, you know, you can uh, you can debate all you want about its uh, its uh, the capability of the filmmakers. Um, you know, you'd be wrong if you would say it's a bad film, but uh, it was uh, it opened up the industry and provided the means for making so many. Uh, films and memorable films in the years to come. Yeah, well, so, the point that the yeah. point that you're making that's so interesting is because you're absolutely right. You know, um, Hollywood was making movies like Hello Dolly and Paint Your Wagon and making a completely wrong kind of movie, and nobody was going to see it. The industry was completely on the rocks, and along comes Easy Rider, and yeah. for the next bunch of years, everybody's chasing Easy Rider and trying to figure out the new normal. Well, then and, you know, of course, but, along comes Al Ruddy. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank God for Al. But with here's the, with the Godfather. But here's where I think that this, is, in a way, parallels why the '80s is so successful in a different way. Star Wars comes along in '77 and redefines the paradigm, and everyone's trying to chase what Star Wars did. But right. it, it's a while before they can figure it out because that comes out in '77. You realize this thing um, is a phenomenon by '78. So then you've got to develop scripts, and you have to sort of you know, come to terms with the new uh, uh, special effects, visual effects. I mean, remember, even when Galactica was knocking off for TV, they were using the same equipment they used to make Star Wars because yeah. people didn't have it. So you, you start to see 81, which is like kind of the last year of the 70s, because, you, you know, John Borman's doing Excalibur and Outland. These movies right. still feel like 70s movies. Totally. But in a 82, you, you feel the beginning of the 80s. And partially that's, Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, not not to get political. I mean, I'm not a Reagan fan, but there was a sense in the country of turning a page. Wargate yeah. was over. The the hostages were free. You know, there was a sense it's morning in America, and um, uh, and and so the tone of movies changed dramatically in the in the 80s. But you were seeing the influence of Star Wars. Not that people were doing. You know, you had the message from space and all the the knockoffs yeah. in the '70s, but now you you were feeling like the sense of doing something completely new and and breaking the boundaries of Star Wars in 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 the '80s. And it I was mean, that... definitely, yeah, it was definitely a renaissance. But it was it, it was the response also to the new corporatization of Hollywood, and uh, it was these uh, these corporate overlords trying to mimic what uh, had been done uh, previously and uh, with various uh, outcomes. 
because look at them trying to figure out what's going on. Disney doing Tron, for instance. Right. Like they, you know, all they were doing was re-releasing their animated films. That's shit like Condor Man. Right. And yeah. they, they couldn't figure out like what Disney should or could be. Then they said, oh, my God, well, we're really good at animation. So what if we do this crazy movie about people living inside a computer and it's animated and it's different? And, you know, it's like th this could be groundbreaking in the way this is a film maybe Walt would have made. Right. And um, and and so maybe it's not a great movie, but it's like gonzo and and really interesting. And I mean, even, you know, and then you have these filmmakers the same way that we look back at the 80s with nostalgia. Spielberg is looking back to the movies he grew up on. Paul Schrader is looking back to the movies to the something like Cat People or John Carpenter doing the thing or then later they live. Um, it, it's so interesting to see, you know, these filmmakers who are influenced by like the movies they grew up on. And now sort of reinterpreting them in the post Star Wars era in the 80s. I mean, that's why it's like, even if you don't like, and there's so many of these movies that I think are terrible in the 80s, but they're so ambitious. I mean, look at the thing with that ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you almost, you'd say things like, you can't do that today, but you, nobody would probably let you do that today. Um, I think what was going on in the 80s was, and, and Darren is totally right, it was the beginning of the corporatization of, of Hollywood, but it was at a time when nobody knew what the hell worked or right. why. And so it, it contained that spirit of experimentation from the 70s, except now it had ginormous honking budgets. And there was an attempt to capture the audience that had hit Star Wars and had hit even Jaws, frankly. Um, I mean, I'm sure the overlap on that audience is uh, is, is quite something. Um, and it took them a, a solid 10 years to figure out that, hey, when you show people a sequel to the thing that worked, they want to they wanna see another They want to see more of that. Right, yeah. which is why the 90s turned into a freaking wasteland of garbage. Well, well, because, because by the 90s, most of the creative executives had either been retired or mm -hmm. eliminated. I mean, Steve, how can you dismiss, I don't mean you, but how can <laughs> you dis dismiss a decade yeah, you, sir. that had movies like Blue Velvet and Brazil and Spinal Tap? I, well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, and I'm going to restrict my comments to American films, foreign, right. foreign films aside. Um, there's an interesting confluence of events that I think uh, it, it also speaks to what Darren and Ashley were saying in the 80s, where prior to that, you had the dissolution of the studio system, you know, in the 60s and the, the rise of these, you know, outsiders, uh, your Scorsese's and your Lucas's and your Schrader's and your Coppola's coming in and making these films and you had sort of a, almost a two-track system you had the more artistic films and you had the more popular films by the 80s they that decade they kind of fused together where the popular films and the artistic films were often the same you mm -hmm. look at some of the the you know the big oscar winners were also some of the higher grossing films you have you know things like amadeus in terms of endearment or Platoon, or Out of Africa, Rain Man. I mean, Rain Man was a monster hit. And, you know, that's not quite an art film and not quite a, you know, maybe a mainstream entertainment like, a you know, an E.T. or a Ghostbusters. Right. But, a, but a popular film. A popular mainstream artistic success right. and then i feel like in the in the 90s they kind of started to diverge again or you had the rise of the the miramax 
right. and, and the the indie the new indies the, the tarantinos and the you know when those guys came on the scene but you know who i think um really exemplified that split that you're talking about like right so that in if in the 80s the experimentation was happening with the with the popular films if those were kind of the art films if there were you know these attempts at, at art in the context of commerce and then in the 90s they split I, I think that might be my problem with the 90s and and the guy who exemplifies it is spielberg who went from in the 80s and the 70s uh making these larger than life blockbuster films that were incredibly smart um you know really had a soul and a brain and something mm -hmm. to say uh and he you know he adorned them with like with just these amazing set pieces and in the 90s suddenly it became well i'm going to do the big blockbuster movie and then i'm going to do this you know this sort of my my oscar my own my, my next, own movie yeah my own but movie they were they were a hybrid in the 80s they were both and they were right. better mm -hmm. you know it's like obviously there were some great spielberg films that came out in the 90s cool cool but the, the to me it's he he lost his mojo a bit when he stopped um looking at his at his blockbuster films as art i think well, I, I think there that that schism sort of started with the color purple mm -hmm. because no way is the color purple a spielberg movie and it's arguable that it shouldn't have been that uh, other directors would have uh, brought a, a more quote unquote authentic voice to that film because uh, as it is it's sort of it tells the story standing back slightly. Um, so it, it doesn't feel as, as real or compelling as it could have been. And that seems to be like one of the first times that Spielberg sort of uh, went over and, and tried to do one for the critics rather mm. than just the populace. Well, he was looking for his Oscar. You, yeah, you exactly. felt you 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 felt that he was trolling for an Oscar. You see that totally. a lot in his career where he's making this, for the, uh, you know, to win an Oscar. Yeah. And that was why it was so nice when he won it for Schindler's because you thought, okay, now finally he'll go back to making the kind of movies we love, <laughs> you know, where, whether it be Raiders, you know, in 81, another great eighties movie, yeah. you know, and, and then, you know, Empire of the Sun, which is terrific yeah. in the eighties yeah. as well. I mean, and then he produced all these great movies like back to the future. Yep. But even so, Empire of Sun also it felt like one of those attempts to, uh, you know, to to get an Oscar. Yeah, it was, it was it's his, a terrific it, movie. But his impersonation of David Lean. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but it's so interesting. You look at the beginning of 81. Because, uh, you know, you guys are all, you, you know, big horror fans um, and horror I'm not really. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, Ashley specifically Ashley is uh, a big horror, horror movie fan. And you see in the 70s, you know, horror sort of coming of age with Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But then, in you know, in 81, it's like what I, I mean, that's where it gets really interesting because you have Evil Dead, you have The Howling, American Werewolf in London. I mean, you have two really great werewolf movies and and Rick, what Rick Baker is doing with and, uh, you know, is, is amazing uh, with the transformations. And you know, even in terms of studio horror, like I'll take Poltergeist over the Omen any day of the week. Any know? day. I mean, well, um, that, that experimentation of the of the seventies in horror that really opened up that genre and changed what it could be. It, horror went through the same thing that every other genre did in the eighties. Um, suddenly, they could do more things with effects. They there was, I think, um, a feeling that um, they could tell more and different kinds of stories. 
you have to understand is that Halloween, you know, when it first came out, um, there was nothing like it. When Mm -hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, there was nothing like it. And there were a lot of people who attempted to capture that and, you know, and kind of and take advantage of, you know, the the trailblazing that happened, like the Friday the 13th series comes to mind. I think that, you know, there are some things that are worthy about the first Friday the 13th movie, but that's neither here nor there. Like what was happening with movies like The Thing, like everything that John Carpenter tried, you know, especially in the in the early to, to the late late mid 80s uh I, I think was always fascinating and interesting and even his misses were interesting because he was trying something new and oh. they were using technology and they weren't limiting themselves uh to what they think the what, you know what they thought the audience wanted it was the it was the process that uh you know lucas and spielberg uh were doing of taking genre movies that were b pictures and doing them as a pictures, right? Um, and a, a lot of the a lot of these horror films that you uh, mentioned started out as B pictures, and then as they you know advanced their uh, their franchises, uh, they grew them into more and more expensive films. Yeah, and uh, you know it, it the but the audience was there to help grow that. Well, well even look- something like uh, you know James Cameron coming onto the scene in a big way with the Terminator. You know, totally, you know, kind of a B picture, yeah, low budget, but a really smart story, very inventively made. And I think was a, you know, was a surprise hit. And then he follows that up with something like the kind of thing Ashley was talking about with Aliens, where he takes another kind of a, you know, a B picture, uh, Alien, a very classy B picture, and totally putting it through the 80s Izer. You know, everything's bigger in that movie. It's kind of the same story. But it's almost it's, exactly the same story. Yeah, beat for the story. The major story beats are yeah. pretty much the same, but it's it's recontextualized, you know, and it, it's told in this really fun, embiggened. over the top, embiggened 80s way that's super entertaining. <laughs> yeah. I want to put every movie through the 80 Izer. Where can I get that? Does Amazon have 80 Izer? Right. It's actually sharper image because I love that. And I mean, I just think that. You know, you you dismiss the 80s at your own peril because look at John Borman and Excalibur. I mean, that's such a smart um, uh, uh, um, sort of sorcery movie. You know, even Conan, you know, has a, a, philo- a philo- you know philosophical underpinnings to it. Yeah, it's not you know, it's not like just this goofy swords and sandals kind of thing like you saw in the 50s and 60s or you would see later. You know, um, there's something really interesting going on. And look at who, who, all the people that came out of Excalibur, you know, Patrick Stewart, Liam Neeson, Helen Mirren. I mean, it's 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 incredible. It's, and, ta- and- it's taking these these little, you know, like I said, the B-movie tropes and treating them seriously for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, treating yes. them like 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 art. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Some like yeah. that people. Not so much, but even that, it's like it really pushes the envelope. And the yeah. stuff that Schrader does in that, where you know, stuff that was only alluded to in the Val Luton version, you know, is like right in your face. And it's like, oh my God, Malcolm Literally. McDowell is basically, you know, having sex with his um, you know, his sister, uh, played by Natasha Kinsky. Um, and you know, obviously movies weren't afraid of sensuality. I mean, you 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 have kind of the soapy stuff like nine and a half weeks, but then you have you know movies like Excalibur and Body Heat that were you know much more, um, you know much more you know real sexy. Yeah, already uh, already like sexy. A, the Fatal Attraction, a more of a you know a thriller, sexy thriller, right? 
Yeah. And of course, you had Superman 2, you know, also in 81, you know, which, which is sexy thriller. Speaking of sexy time. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying that it's like, you know, look, obviously we look back at it now and we have our. But at the time, it was a very satisfying sequel. Absolutely. To Superman. You know, it didn't have the art, the artistry of, of 78, but it was very and it had, you know, these wonderful villains and had a lot of great stuff in it. And, um, you know, so it was it was it was really um, it was really special. Well, again, um, it's the serious meter. I mean, if you're going to, you know, the serious meter on Superman was a good, strong six. OK, well, uh, Super, it didn't Superman have the 80 eyes though. Yes. Well, with, without the 80, 80 eyes, <laughs> the falls kind of short. But but, you know, Superman 2 is at about a four, you know, in on the serious scale. And and that's Depends just a, that's just a change of it, tone. Yeah. yeah. Well, Werner Herzog went over a mountain with that 80 eyeser. And <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, and then you know, let's let's take a second, because, of course, you know, this is I'm going to bring this up. You know, let, let's talk about comedy. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, and and um, you know, certainly, yes. Uh, you know, even Quentin talks about Annie Hall and is his top ten greatest movies of all time. Thank you, Quentin. But um, uh, you know, the Woody Allen masterpieces continue through the eighties. Um, not only do you have Zelig, which is yep. you know one of his greatest films, but you have Hannah and her sisters, yep. Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is is amazing. And look, I, a lot of people don't like it. I really like Stardust Memories, which is his Fellini yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, which is in, in 1980. And of course, then you have just this complete heyday for teen exploitation. You, well, you, 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 you mentioned a couple of my favorite, Purple Rose of Cairo, an oh, utterly yeah, yeah. charming uh, film or Broadway Danny Rose. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, yeah, and then you have teen exploitation, which yeah. I, I think is an insult to call these films teen exploitation. But I mean, because Risky Business, which could never get made today, right. is such a beautifully well-made, clever movie i mean paul brickman i wish he had made more movies i've said this before it's amazing risky business it's a great movie and it's so sexy and cool and smart and um and it's uh, beautifully shot beautifully shot again it it elevates the genre into a serious movie or even something like you know fast times at ridgemont mm -hmm, high you know another great uh teen sex comedy and uh, you know the other end of the spectrum you get into the the sleazier you know your your porkies Porkies you know oh i will stand up i can't believe i just used that phrase but i I will stand Ah. up for the first porkies movie and say that it is a far better film uh than you remember it to be um but i think like because of the franchise that it spawned uh it's sort of the it became the poster child for the uh for the teen exploitation film um, you know, until uh, it was dethroned by the by uh, the American Pie films. Yeah, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a fan of, of Porky's, but we can still be friends. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. Screw you, Mark Altman. <laughs> you don't like what I like. We can't be friends. You know. I mean, it's no Porky's two the next day, but um... <laughs> or revenge. Yeah. 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 And uh, you know, some great action movies. Obviously, Lethal Weapon, especially. I mean, Die Hard changed the action movie forever. Um yeah. and 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 the viability of casting TV TV actors. I, I think Lethal Weapon did too. They were kind of a yeah. one-two punch, you know. Mm-hmm. The the buddy, the 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 smart, funny buddy cop movie. I guess it kind of maybe started 40, forty-eight hours. Forty-eight hours was yep. the beginning of that. You know, but by that, but the Lethal Weapon was forty-eight hours put through the eighties Iser. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But you know what? <laughs> but, 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 what's so interesting about Forty Eight Hours? What's so interesting about that movie is people remember it being this hysterical comedy because they think of oh, Eddie Murphy. If you watch Forty Eight Hours, 
Yeah. It's not very funny. Not that it's not funny. It's funny when it wants to be, yeah. but it's very intense. Yeah. It's a it's a dark action movie. That movie is not screwing around. No, the reason I, why people think of it as a comedy is because of the scene when uh, Eddie Murphy walks into the cowboy bar. Yep. Right. That's all they remember. They don't remember the 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 casual racism. They don't right. remember, you know, Nick Nolte, you know,'s character. He's basically, you know, using all the the, you know, basically this racist stuff to basically get Eddie Murphy's character to do what he wants for him. Right. Um, I mean, the language, the violence. It's a Walter Hill movie. Yeah, it's not you know? screwing around, and it's great. But, yeah, that was a movie I, I missed when it came out. I was a little too young for it, but uh, caught up with it years, several years later and was taken aback at how dark and gritty it was. Not what I was expecting. Well, I think people expect it like they think, oh, it's Beverly Hills Cop, which is fun yeah. for the most part and not that dark. Right. It's more goofy, but in a great way. I mean, it's fabulous. I mean, it's super fun. But um, but 48 hours is is dark. I mean, you know, it's so dark. Uh, even Denise Crosby dies in it. Right. Without an yeah. evil oil slick. <laughs> or a kid biting her ankle. So, I mean, but... That's uh, a reference people then, stay with me. And then you see the rise of Eddie Murphy as a comedic powerhouse from 48 Hours to Beverly Hills, Coming yep. to America, which is hysterical. And, of course, you know, um, I don't think you can dismiss or you dismiss at your own peril um, the, the, the action, the Mount Rushmore of action that was uh, chiseled in the 80s, which is Stallone. You know, with the mm -hmm. Rambo pictures, his first blood is great. I mean, yeah, whatever yeah. you think of the rest of the movies. And then, you know, Schwarzenegger, and I've talked about this before, you know, I sort of dismissed Arnold other than in Terminator and recently, you know, rediscovered his oeuvre with my son who loves Schwarzenegger movies. And the movies are great. I mean, and even when they're not great, he's great. And yeah, there's something yeah. really special about them. Even, even when they're not great, like Commando, which is ludicrous. Yes. It is so much fun to watch that it all makes it worthwhile. Because he's got charisma just yeah. blowing mm -hmm. out his ass. Yeah, Literally. I totally. I, I was really glad to have a chance to reappraise those movies. Um, you know, because I was never a big Predator fan. I like it a lot more now. I was never, you know, I always like Commando for some reason. But uh, even Last Action Hero, you know, kind of. Um, you know, uh, really enjoyed revisiting when I hated that in the past. Well, remember that's nineties. Oh, that's yeah. true. That's nineties. That's nice. Yeah, but you had your, your you had your raw deal, and you had your yeah. um, red heat uh, drink and bait. Red, <laughs> red heat. Yeah, red heat. <laughs> Talking about a movie that does not hold up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Walter Hill me. also. Walter Hill yeah. also. Yeah. yeah, the beginning holds up. Then the rest of it is dog. You know. <laughs> but you know, even if you look at like back at movies like Dragon Slayer, and Darren's talked about this on Fourth Third movie before. I mean. Talk about the pace, the glacial pace of that. You don't even see the dragon until like the third act. I mean, it's yeah. like these movies were so much more interesting. And 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 um yeah, they weren't just like these popcorn machines that well, were put through the AEizer. They were made by storytellers. Mm -hmm. And storytellers don't like to, you know, bury the lead and uh and you know show everything up in the first act i mean it's just yeah. you need to pace things and you need to get the audience primed for what's going to happen and i i feel like that's the difference with you know i remember at the time in the 80s feeling you know that the 80s is when i discovered movies and probably when we all really discovered movies that was my junior high high school and college years when mm -hmm. i you know and also the dawn of the vhs age so it was a time to be able to not just wait for a movie to show up on TV, 
but you could go to the store and rent these movies that you've read about somewhere or somebody told you about. And so that was my, my education. I was, you know, I was like a sponge and omnivorous. I would watch anything, any right. kind of movie, especially by my college years. I would mm -hmm. watch anything and everything I could get my hands on. And but the, so I was kind of spoiled by some of the movies actually coming out in the 80s. I, you know, at the time, I thought they were cheesy. Like you said, Predator, that's uh, goofy. You know, Robocop, ah, oh, that's goofy. You know, all the Karate Kid, ah, that's silly. And I, I've revisited them, and I don't think it's pure nostalgia. I feel like in a, a lot of those movies are just better told stories than oh, a I lot agree. of the movies we're getting today. 100%. Is there a lot well, of those movies that I was too pompous to see at the time? So like Karate Kid, I'm like, I'm not seeing that nonsense, right? And I watched that recently with my family for the first time. And man, is that good. It's yeah, exactly a great what movie. You, I don't have any nostalgia for that movie. Right. And I'm just like, this is a solidly made. It's well-directed by John Avelson. It's really well-written by Mark Kamen. I mean, great performances. So it's like- I mean, Pat Morita, you know, the guy from Happy Days is playing a karate right. master. What? You know? It's like, and it's- Well, you talk emotions. I mean, that's the thing, right? And one of the things that was- great about that decade uh, again all this experimentation with sort of big larger than life b stories elevated to a is that they actually took the time to develop characters and infuse stories with emotion right the peak of the set piece was not the size of the explosion right the 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 peak was always you know the it was it was the emotion it was when the emotion peaked and that's when you were most into the film. Um, and, and that's, that's changed a lot. I mean, that's not saying that like nobody does emotions and characters and, in, in you know, big budget movies anymore. It's not true. I mean, Spider-Man No Way Home is amazing in that yeah. regard. Uh, forgive the pun, but um, it, you know, it, it, the thing that's, that's just, that stands out about Karate Kid. And I think the reason why Cobra Kai has been so successful as a follow-up is because at the end of the day, those movies, were about characters we gave a shit about. RoboCop was about characters we gave a shit yeah. about. And that's, you know, that reminds me of what I recall one of Tarantino's other criticisms of the 80s movies was this obsession with making the characters likable in 80s movies. And that seems like an odd criticism to me. Like, this I, is I not true. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I understand, like, you know, I there are plenty of movies I like that have unlikable lately characters and that's not a that's not an impediment to me i i can watch a movie where characters with characters i don't like because i i still get invested in the story and i like it but it, it seems odd like you know to criticize something like back to the future you know as the characters are likable <laughs> the crowd again yeah. you like these characters well yeah, it, but it, I, and it's it's funny coming from tarantino uh, whose Pulp Fiction is filled with awful characters that you really like. Yeah. All I'll, of them. I'll, I'll take another perspective from you guys. I will refute that completely because I think if you look at the oeuvre of uh, of like uh, Barry Levinson, most of the characters in, 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 in Diner are, yeah. are, are um, loathsome. Or not yeah. loathsome, but they're only out for themselves. They're annoying. I mean, you know, the guy won't get married until she passes the football test. I mean, you know, they're so self-obsessed. They're, you know, this is why I relate. They're so is completely, <laughs> you know, narcissistic and and self-involved. And um, I want to uh, see a version know, and, of Diner where you play all the roles. And it, it's also, <laughs> can I have those fries? You can finish those fries. Yeah. So, yeah. and then also in Tin Man with Danny yeah. DeVito, it's kind of the same thing. Even in the natural, 
you know, Robert Redford's uh, character, you know, is so uh, focused, and you know, Barbara Hershey in that is 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 is, is not, is not She's the angel Bob. of death. Yeah, she's the angel of death. And and then you look at the De Palma films. You know, Craig Wasson is a scumbag in Body Double. Um, you know, and then you have. Um, uh, certainly in Scarface, Tony Montana is not the, um, you know, the, the most likable man. Yeah, man. Yeah. You know what? And, but he does have a little friend and his little friend likes him. And even like in Scorsese and After Hours, Griffin Dunn, again, right. he, he, you know, he's not a character where like, oh, I really like that Griffin Dunn. No, he's and, a nebbish. I mean, he's a, he's a <laughs> nebbish and he, he makes bad decisions and he doesn't do the right thing and he's a whiner and it's great. But yeah. I, so I don't this whole idea that, oh, the characters are always likable, um, you know, Angel Heart. What about Mickey Rourke is Johnny yeah. favorite? You know, yeah. I mean, it's like um, no, it's Harry Angel. It's Harry right. Angel. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, just yeah. just uh, dropping back to Barry Levinson again. I mean, he is a a pretty much unsung director these days, mm-hmm. uh, but he had so many. Uh, you know, call out films in the 80s that are that really stand out. And I, I think that one of the most interesting ones was when he, uh, his career uh, met a nexus with Spielberg and he did Young Sherlock Holmes, mm. which is on the on the surface. It's a really goofy idea, but it's actually a very sort of smart and sweet film that is uh, is sort of in this nether region of uh, of uh, storytelling. And it's it's fascinating because it's it's like a it's like a composite of so many other genres mixed into this one film. And, and there's a, the... there's a sadness in it too that is absent, I think, from a lot of uh, yeah. similar type of films. And, and what other decade are they going to greenlight Buckaroo Banzai across the? <laughs> never, <laughs> never, never again. I, right. I mean, it's so bizarre. And it's so, you know, and with that cast that no, no, Alan Barkin wasn't a big star yet, you know, Peter Weller, there's James, Jeff Goldblum. I mean, and then there's Cronenberg's The Fly. I mean, it's like, come on, who's making yeah. these movies? Who's giving Cronenberg a, a, a budget to make a mainstream movie based on, you know, Scanners and the Brood and, you know, <laughs> and he does Dead or, Zone too. The, like, the mother of like, of all, somebody gave this person a ton of money to make this gigantic film david lynch making dune for god's sake yeah. i mean yeah. who does mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. yeah that's a great point and then you know you have dino de Laurentiis, yeah doing you know conan he did uh king um, kong uh, blue velvet you know king kong lives but um you know the other thing is it, it's just um you know we uh rob reiner you know because quentin's yeah. talking about don siegel and yes don siegel made some who made more great movies than rob reiner in the 80s spinal tap princess bride when harry met sally stand I mean, by me stand by me the sure I mean, thing that's yeah. a the sure thing that's a pretty damn good run isn't it yeah yeah well that that's the thing so many directors had damn good runs in the 80s mm-hmm. and i just and want to make a lot of one... good films one more Barry Levinson shout out. I'm going to include it in the 80s, even though it came out in 1990. Uh, Avalon. Avalon, Avalon yeah. Yeah. which I watched recently and is, God damn, it's one of the saddest movies I've ever, I mean, it's basically about the dissolution of a family, but it's yeah. absolutely magnificent. He's one of those actors who was huge in the 80s and early 90s that no one talks about anymore. What was his name again? Armin Mueller-Stahl. Armin Mueller-Stahl. Because he can't pronounce it. It's just like, <laughs> 
Cause Maria Brandauer, how he came yeah. out of Mephisto, and right. then he was like in Never Say Never Again, which is not a good movie, but he was in a Ooh, bunch no. of great, he was in a bunch of Hollywood movies, and he was great and everything, and then he disappeared, and it was the same thing with Armin Mueller's Troll. So well, here's a question: If 1981 was actually the last year of the 70s, is 1991 actually the last year of the uh, the 80s? Well, uh, can you make that, that, that could be argued? It felt like I, 92 I was kind of a turning point. 91, 92 was kind of a turning point to me. Well, it wasn't me. That's when I moved to LA from New York. <laughs> but that felt like the the rise of some of like you know the the new indies, the new Miramax. That's you know with Reservoir Dogs and was that ninety one, ninety two? That was ninety two, right? See, yeah, because you start to see the rise of the new indies with Sex Lies and Videotape. Yeah, and and but but even well, in, that was eighty nine. But yeah, yeah, that, yeah that but was sort of the trend. Yeah, but even in the early eighties, you have stuff like Smithereens by. Um, uh, uh, Susan Seidelman, you know, and then right. she went on did her other Greenwich Village movies like Desperately Seeking Susan. And but either uh, way, Sex Lies and Videotape makes your point. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, and then people criticize this. Oh, there were no women making movies then. They're so dismissive because, meanwhile, you had like Amy Heckerling who was yeah. doing brilliant work. You, you did Susan Seidelman who was doing amazing stuff. I mean, you know, the, it was Joan, Joan Micklin Silver mm -hmm, with Crossing Delancey, another really great movie in the eighties. I mean, so, you know, Elaine May was still doing stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, people start to follow this narrative. You know, they start to put this stuff out there and it just gets accepted as the truth. And it's not. Oh, Catherine Bigelow. True. Well, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah. My God. I mean, she did Near Dark in the 80s. Yeah. Blue Steel. Blue Steel. Yeah. Which uh, later became a look on Zoolander. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, <laughs> and 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 you know, later did one of our favorite movies, Strange Days, but that yeah, was much much, much later. That was much later. Um, but so many great, even the movies that weren't great, like um, Star Chamber, like Peter Himes, The Star right. Chamber, or Eyewitness. You know, it's like they were twenty ten. Twenty ten, yeah. I mean, there's some really interesting. Even the failures had Are something going on. They were interesting. They were about something like Legend of the Lone Ranger, which was directed Oof. by Bill Fraker. Yeah, you know that's a tough movie to watch. It's like, Ooh. but yet it's it's there's still something I interesting about it. Um, it's just it's it, and I, I you know I'll go to the mattresses every time as you guys know for Michael Crichton's Looker, you know, which is a terrible movie Looker. that I love. You know, yeah, it's an interesting idea at its. At its core, but I love Looker was a uh, si uh, was a sitcom. Yeah, well, <laughs> everybody loves Looker. Was also Looker. So, you got some splitting <laughs> to do. <laughs> you know, we even talk about the Carpenter films like Escape from New York and They Live and yeah. Prince of Darkness and just talk about a guy who was off in his own world experimenting with yeah. just madness. Big Escape Trouble in Little York China. Madness. Big Trouble in Little China. The mm -hmm. biggest B movie ever made. That's right. Yeah. And we, we didn't mention Spike Lee yet. You know, it was the, yeah. the oh beginnings of his career. To with, totally. She's got to have it and do the right thing. And School Days, which I, School Days. I like. Or something like House of Games, you know, a really interesting, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. thriller. I, I wanted to see a combination of uh, Spike Lee and John Carpenter do the right thing. What <laughs> <laughs> was, was was Spanish prisoner was was Spanish prisoner also in the eighties or uh, Spanish prisoner is in the nineties nineties oh okay yeah. but yeah House of Games is House of Games House of Games is, is incredible yeah, yeah. Oh, you had Blowout yeah De Palma was still making good films yep. uh, in the eighties Blowout yeah you had Blowout you had Body Double you had Scarface 
Oh, and, um, no, and one of my favorite one-two punches, uh, Peter Weir, I was coming in say, with yeah. Witness and the Mosquito Coast. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just that episode, by the way. Still two of Harrison Ford's finest performances of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, and I know you didn't want to talk about foreign films, but you have Wolfgang Peterson's Das Boat. You right. know, you have well, which was technically a TV show. That's yeah, true. but it was released yeah. here as a, as a as a feature. You know, or one and of then, my favorites, Akira Kurosawa, was Ron. Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. And I loved what Albert Brooks was doing in the eighties too. Mm. Like, oh my god, romance. Yeah. Um, you know, I won't give Woody all the love. And Mel Brooks was still at the top of his game, kind well, of. Kind of top of his game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> top of his game was mid seventies, but yeah, uh, he, was... he he did some good movies later too. Yeah, yeah he did. Right, okay, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> he was not at the bottom of his game in the end. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, and then we didn't even mention the right stuff. Phil Kaufman, yeah, right, who also yeah. did Unbearable uh, Lightness of, of Being, being Ernest. Well, that's a that's a different way camp Jim Barney. Yeah. Of Ernest goes to camp. Oh my God. That's funny. That's funny. I so I mean I'm really I'm finding it hard to say that it well, and, and Oliver Stone had a hell of a run yeah. in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And you know what and, else was going on in the eighties that you don't see anymore? Now, like when you do a, a rom com um or anything like that it's always shot like a telenovela right it's always Mm. shot very medium very hot like it's just it's they're never shot in a very interesting way you go back to the 80s romancing the stone Mm. was shot like a big adventure yeah right was shot like like a legit drama like they weren't it wasn't lowest common denominator filmmaking it was like they were always going for something even though the genre was completely identifiable I'm gonna throw I'm gonna throw one out to Ashley because this is not a movie I like at all, but I respect how gonzo it is and um the fact that it got made is amazing. Muppets take Manhattan. No, and I know people love it. That's really good. But um Highlander. Yeah, Russell Mulcahy's oh, yeah. Highlander. God, I love Highlander. That of course movie, you do. Look, it's <laughs> it is it is it is the definition of bananas. It, yeah. it just totally is, and and it and it did think like whether you like it or not, it's like visually, it's really interesting. Nobody had like uh, Russell McKay. He was really the uh, the sort of the, the the bleeding edge of the hey get video uh, music video directors to come in and, and make films that eventually became David Fincher, which was definitely mm-hmm. a trade up. Russell McKay, he basically had one good film in him, and it was Highlander. Um, You know, and it was like it it used music in really interesting ways. It hadn't really been done before, Uh, like where it just it essentially, you know, well, other than Flash Gordon, I guess, where they had like an entire album by Queen. But um, but it was it was it was very much um, a movie where the, the soundtrack was the score and the soundtrack wasn't just crap that was written by random artists Mm -hmm. for the film. You know, it was here's Queen. You know, right? Well, we didn't even talk about the emergence of music video because MTV mm. hits in '81. You know, Friday night videos for all of us who didn't have cable in '82. Yeah, right. And um, so you have like Adrian Lynn doing like flash dance, and you know, even Officer Gelman, even though it doesn't have uh, Taylor Hackford doesn't have a video director style, that song you know, made that movie, you know, it broke that movie. And then it became, you know, people forget that was a bigger hit than Star Trek two that year. Officer mm-hmm. Gentleman. It was huge. That was the Top Gun Maverick of, of 82 Officer Gentleman. And that's, it was because of that song. I mean, it's yeah. also a great movie, but it, that song was, was, was a big part of why it worked. And same thing with Rocky three, I have a tiger, you know, mm-hmm. made, made, made that, you know, a, a phenomenon. Um, it's crazy. 
And, and then you still you had uh, you know '80s musicals. You had something like uh, uh, um, Little Shop of Horrors or um, mm -hmm. the the Talking Heads movie. Um, Stop making sense. Uh, Stop making Stop sense. Ma yeah. And, and the other one. Uh, oh, right. Uh, stories. stories. Right. David Byrne. Yeah. Yeah. No. And we but, haven't even Purple Rain. <laughs> right. Oh my God, Purple Rain, so good. Um, but it was just again, it was like that, like that confluence of culture that had not happened before. People were doing wacky crap just to see what would work, and if you, you could know do what, it again, you know what the wackiest crap was. Uh, hmm. Columbia hires um, <laughs> John Houston to direct Annie. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. That's nuts. That was nineteen eighty. Right? That, that was nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was a little that, guy that, that, and I went that, to see that. That's, yeah. that's the 80, that's 82, actually. And he was 82. Yes. Oh, yeah. I thought it was earlier. Yeah, uh, yeah. insane. Insane. Yeah. Like, I, I thought that? you were going to say, like, who who makes a movie about a couple of high school dumbasses who get a time machine so they can do their school report? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. How fun is that? It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's funny. Like, I, you know, it feels like, you know, maybe Quentin is is dunking on the 80s because he wasn't a part his, of it in his mind it sort of maybe led to the downfall of hollywood in a way in in that i you know i thought the point of hollywood is to make movies that connect with audiences yeah and you saw the birth of just so many franchises in the 80s it's i don't think it's ever been rivaled since then yeah well i and, think if we're going to psychoanalyze him you got to look and say what are the kinds of movies he's making he's influenced by 70s black exploitation right. and 70s martial arts films. So yeah. those are the films that speak to him the most. Right. More, you know, you don't see the 80s manifested in his work at all. Yeah. No, that's he was, very true. Because he was uh dealing with uh, a tough uh a tough road. Yeah. I mean, even once upon a time in Hollywood, it's it's 60s television yeah. that influenced that. You know, it it's not. And we all agree the 60s were an amazing era for film and the 70s were an amazing era for film. But that was the that was what imprinted on him. Or, or, in... or 60s Italian films and war films. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, I, th I think that the I don't think people uh, disagree with what he likes. I think people disagree with what he puts down. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But well, he's painting with a very broad Brush. Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, Steve, you're onto something that he's he's trying to make a point about how the beginning of corporatization of Hollywood led to the the downfall of kind of big movies. But my my response to that is, yes, there are a lot of crappy movies lately. Um, and, you know, that the 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 proportion, like the signal to noise ratio has uh, has not been getting better over the last uh, 30 years or so. Um, but that is that's inevitable it's because the marketing pukes took over it is not because you had the filmmakers that were talking about like trying to do big weird crap in the 1980s it's marketing pukes um who are trying to leverage what they think they've learned from what people tried and succeeded at in the 1980s and none of that has made it harder to make movies like what quentin likes and like the kind of thing that he likes to make people respond to those too 
I don't think the corporatization is what did it because I think in the 80s, people weren't getting the kind of notes. Um, market research mm -hmm. wasn't driving the kinds of movies yep. that were made. They were very small executive suites. So yes, Transamerica owned, you know, I mean, even somebody like who we who we completely laud and worshipped, uh, Alan Ladd, right? Because he greenlit um, uh, Star Star Wars. And and look, the reason he probably made, he agreed to distribute Blade Runner was he said, okay, I took this crazy bet on Star Wars and it worked out. So I'm going to take this crazy bet on Blade Runner. And it, it didn't work out from that time. But look at you know what he did to Once Upon a Time in America. That wasn't, you know, that was someone who, you know, who was one of the rebels and the renegades and who was responsible. He was the one who chopped it all up. Right. Oh. And it was. So, so I don't think you can say, oh, it was like the corporatization. I, I mean, I know that's not right. what you're saying, but I, I, I think that, you, you know, I mean, yeah, Heaven's Gate with Transamerica, but it brought down the company, you know, and I just feel like, you know, 20th Century Fox, they put out movies like Buckaroo Ponce. They put out movies like Big Time, Trouble in Little China. I mean, that's crazy. They would, that would never happen now. Sorry, And Steve. the filmmakers were still taking some big swings. I'm looking at something like Ghostbusters. You know, Ivan Reiten makes makes this fairly large budget horror science fiction comedy movie starring yeah. a bunch of TV actors who, who have appeared in some films. And, you know, it's a, just a weird concept. Uh, this group of scientists from a university that make a company to capture ghosts i mean it's like you know uh, yeah it's literally it, a saturday morning cartoon idea yeah and it's a monster hit that spawned a franchise that persists to this day where the now, problem it, comes... like, I, I just finished listening to um to the wild and crazy guys uh book which is mm -hmm. basically about how all those those comedians mm -hmm. sort of built their careers especially saturday night live and uh and sctv yeah and it's interesting it's like those guys you know all the ghostbusters guys and the saturday night live guys and that include like chevy chase who sort of went on to film careers um they were they were big money it it wasn't um it wasn't a uh it seems risky to say, hey, let's make a movie where you have these TV guys uh, chasing down ghosts. But the way that they saw it is like, here are these guys who can put butts into seats because they're this funny together mm -hmm. and they want to do this insane thing. So, okay. But I think today, I don't know that you'd get the okay. I think the note you'd get is, well, we know that you guys are really popular, but is there something that you know everybody might like that you could do? And it wouldn't happen. Yeah. But you also had studios like Warner Brothers were were like patrons of like Kubrick and Paramount was like a patron of John Hughes. They were greenlining whatever he wanted to do. They and they weren't telling him what to do. You know, he was making all these these movies and and that was, you know, that was a great thing. So I just you know I don't I I just I th I think I think where the eight you can criticize the eighties it, it it it's and it's the same thing that happens now is, you know, when you had a success they tried to double down. So yeah. you have Ghostbusters 2, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, you know, movies that should have never had sequels, you know, um, or just really awful. They had, you know, so so you, you have a lot of these big hits got these terrible sequels. I mean, you can even argue that, you know, but it was audacious of Universal to, you know, Back to the Future 2 and 3 back to back. I mean, that kind of thing never really had happened before. Um so, it, it, you know, the whole sequelization of like, OK, we've had some success. Let's do it again. But, you know, Die Hard 2, Lethal Weapon 2, those were more successful. But, uh, you know, another 48 hours, that was the 90s. But um, that that's where you can be critical of the 80s. But, I mean, I think we just said, you know, how diverse and how, um, uh, 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 you know, amazing the, the 80s were.
Oh my god! You know, there's another super creative idea. You know, uh, a 1940s film noir starring a detective and a cartoon rabbit. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what the hell? (laughs) Right, and it's like that's that is it's it's what you know we were what mark was just saying about how you know you, you didn't have like the the giant boardrooms making decisions that decision is oh robert zemeckis um he's well, made some really spielberg. successful movies spielberg and spielberg again robert yeah. zemeckis yeah yes but both of those guys have made a ton of money so let them do what the hell yeah. they want and stay out of their way yeah it's insane but let them try it because yeah. it'll still probably be in the in the great ledger in the sky. They're still probably going to be in the black, even if it's a total disaster, even if it's yeah. 1941 all over again. You know, like Radioland murders. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I, even something like Willow. I mean, you you, you know, that exists. Uh, you know, again, that was Alan Ladd Jr., you know, gambling on Lucas again. So, I don't yeah. know. I, I mean, just look at every, just look at everything that the Lad Company was doing. Um, here, wait, I'm trying to do a, um, everything Lad Company because you not only you know did they end up coming to the rescue of Blade Runner, um, but by you know agreeing to distribute it, but you know they did Once Upon a Time in America, and they they did Outland. You know, and and they did, you know, the hand, and they do, you know, but they, they were the band some, of the hand. No, wait, no, that was. No. <laughs> they were doing some crazy stuff, and Orion, like doing stuff like RoboCop. I mean, yeah. certainly, uh, you know, Mike Metavoy, who had left United Artists and started Orion with his partners. I mean, this, the the kinds of stuff they were taking chances on was it was it was it was great. But finding huge success, I remember one of my first jobs, I had to make a delivery to Orion's headquarters in um, in Century City. I yeah. walked into the lobby and there's just Oscars, these cabinets filled with Oscars from all their, their huge films. Yep, yep. So, I mean, I, I just, you know, and, and you still had Kubrick doing, you know, he had came out with Full Metal Jacket that, that decade. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which, albeit flawed, still has some brilliant, brilliant you know a lot of brilliance to it so i just well it's it's two amazing movies in one <laughs> yeah it's like peanut butter and chocolate so i mean so, the movies yeah. that 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 quentin speaks to the outfit which is a good movie it's not a great movie um dirty harry um uh um rolling thunder rolling you know, thunder i i understand that these movies had a huge impact on him but uh, you know i think a lot of these don't compare to the you know heyday of the uh of the 80s and i'm not knocking the 70s because we love 70s movies 70 i think is probably at the end of the day a better decade for movies than the 80s but the 80s is not a bad decade for movies well i I think 70s at its highs were excellent but its lows were way lower too (laughs) yeah Uh, Yeah. i I think it's a it's a bigger roller coaster uh uh, spline than uh than the 80s is well, it's like, it's just, it's, look, they were living in a world where they were chasing Easy Rider, for God's sake. You know what I mean? So you're, you're, you're look, there's a reason why nobody's like trying to do a fucking, excuse my French, 12 episode, like, you know, uh, revival series on Disney Plus for Easy Rider. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, like that, I mean, you know, that's, that's Easy Rider with Morgan, Fe- Morgan Freeman. Sort of a, a, a direct, <laughs> a direct result of Easy Rider was uh, Lucas's American Graffiti. Uh, mm-hmm. They 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 wanted they wanted that formula with uh, you know an unknown director and unknown cast and a very low budget, 
and uh, it, uh, with a, with a concept that appeals to what they thought was the youth market. Right, exactly, exactly. But you know, then American graffiti leads to more American graffiti, which tanks hugely. So there is no telling what's going to be working and what isn't, and that's that's the thing that made uh, executives in the '70s and '80s so brave, because they didn't really know they had to have faith in either the filmmakers or the material. Um, and so, and, and that's something that is sadly lacking now because all that the, all that is being judged on now is IP and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, backup ability so that no one can be blamed for the decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And by the I, way, I want to say, you know, that I don't think that that is necessarily certainly absolutely not always the fault of the creative executives it's just it is the world that they live in and um, i think we all know that you know there are studio executives and creative executives out there who desperately you know want to treat filmmakers and film uh the way that they they need to be treated and deserve to be treated the way that things were made in the 80s but but the structure that they operate in i think makes that extremely difficult oh of course um, no that, that that's what i mean about uh you know not being able to blame something because the everyone is pointing the finger from everywhere right i i feel like yeah like think maybe this is what you're saying that the 80s was probably the last decade where green light decisions weren't made by marketing departments yeah. they were made by studio executives who still nominally had a, a love of film or i i guess that was also and, the and decade who had a when... relationship with the filmmakers Right. Th 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 I guess that was a decade when there was, you see a lot of corporatization that you were talking about earlier, but the, the marketing department seems to ha have gained the upper hand since the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time in the seventies, Transamerica owned United Artists, yeah. and you know, and you had in the in the seventies, you had Gulf and Western owned Paramount. So I, I don't think the eighties it was a completely new phenomenon. What was great was they respected the filmmakers, and like you said, the executives knew film, they cared about film, and they didn't overreach. Well, yeah, be, and they think they were the be, stars because the overlord companies didn't assume that they knew what they were doing. Yeah. They they were able to put it in the hands of people who did have experience with this kind of thing. And, you know, honestly, if if the marketing department had uh, taken over Buckaroo Banzai, maybe it wouldn't have been a huge, a huge failure. Because mm -hmm. re remember, also in the 70s, you know, freaking Kinney owned Warner Brothers, That's that, correct. which was they parking garages. They were a parking garage company. <laughs> So I mean, I just it's it, it's less a question of who has the strings, but who's gonna you know are you gonna be Elon Musk and involved in all the details and screwing everything up, or are you gonna be you know Charlie Bluthorn and just kind of like enjoy the perks but not have your fingers I, in the pie? Uh, I always every, thought every you'd day. be one who uh, hold the strings. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gotta say, um, I think this is a really interesting conversation. And this is why I'm so glad that here on Deck 78, our, our subscriber only uh podcast, uh, which is uh available to our Trexperts Plus subscribers, and uh uh as a, a co-production, a special report with our 430 movie podcast, which uh is returning this February. Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're very That's excited. 430 times 78. We're so much. <laughs> we're 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 so excited about uh, bringing four thirty movie back. We've had a lot of people asking, uh, and we'll be back for our sixth season, which is extraordinary. Oh and, uh, and, uh, and 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 yes, really... we are going to be mentioning movies that we've mentioned before. 
guaranteed yeah, right. because you already did the reset. Yeah, we did the reset last season where we can bring That's bring right. bring 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 them back. They're <laughs> now. Um, but uh, it'll be uh, it'll be it'll be great. And deck seventy eight will continue to talk about trek adjacent topics. So um that that's fun because it frees us up to get away from uh talking about star trek 3 and we can talk about other movies and uh tv shows and uh did some wonderful i i, I really enjoyed that moonlighting episode a couple of weeks back and we talked about battle beyond the stars and um some some really great stuff and fourth movie we've got some great exciting weeks planned uh uh when we come back in february um we're going to be recording soon and of course uh if you enjoy hearing us uh, muse on the various topics of the day uh, don't miss our Inglorious Trexperts holiday specials, which are counting down now. And uh, we'll be counting down for the foreseeable future as we count down the 101 <laughs> greatest Star Trek characters of all time. One hour for each character. <laughs> <laughs> our first 101 hour podcast. But, you know, seeing seeing some responses on uh, social media from uh, the promise of the uh, of the holiday special, um, I think a lot of people are going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> Steve, who's your number one Star Trek character? Well, James Kirk, of course. Well, we'll I find mean, out. Not, not a very original ones. thought, but <laughs> well, we'll find out. It's not Neelix. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know, maybe it's Spock. Hmm, I have to think about it. Mm, see? Yeah. see, not yeah. so, not so simple it's, as it's not hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, Steve, what are you most excited about uh, with the Return of Four Thirty movie? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm excited to spend more time with you guys. It's been a while since we've uh, been in a room together, virtual or otherwise, and and had a lively conversation. And the, this last hour has been delightful, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to to more in the in the new year. Well, that's a good answer. That's a great answer. I can't top that one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll leave it at that. Um, and of course, if you want to know more about the 430 movie, you can visit us on social at 430 Movie Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or at Inglorious Trek at uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Post, or Mastodon. And, uh, and of course, IngloriousTrekSperts.com and 430Movie.com. That's right. And if you're still looking for something for that very special loved one, Go to the websites where you can pick up some great 430 movie or Inglorious Trexpert swag. Oh my God, there's such great it's stuff. Swagalicious. It's, <laughs> it's great. And 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 uh, I know that the loved one in your life will truly appreciate having a 430 movie mug or uh, Inglorious Trexpert pajamas or a cold. I don't think necklaces. there's pajamas. Brass knuckles. There should be. <laughs> there should be. You know, maybe someday there will be Inglorious Trexperts pajamas Stickers. so that you can you can cuddle up with your favorite Trexperts. Ooh, what? <laughs> no, no, they can't. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to talk to our fans. What do you mean? <laughs> I put my face on their crotch. That's what like you talking about your Trexperts waifu pillow. Oh my. oh my god i've got darren doctorman <laughs> you know what there should be a trexperts uh, t-shirt that has a target on it for a scooter that's not funny it is funny it's really funny actually not 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 funny not not funny i fail to see the humor in that i i guess i i'm not going to talk to you anymore 
Okay. Good luck. Apparently, with that. You had a disagreement. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, you're not allowed to disagree about things. Oh my God, these people in Star Trek Three. Oh, and the Nemesis thing was the best. You guys, that movie's great. What do you know? You guys hate everything. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. We don't. You hate Star Trek. <laughs> we occasionally. We hate because we love. It's so funny. I was thinking about that whole Star Trek thing, and and I, I think why certain people get so angry about certain things that are done on Star Trek more recently. And I realized people it, can be very difference. fearful of change. Well, I, I know that's not what I was going to say. I was saying, there's a difference between being a creator and a custodian. Right. And I think when you create something, uh, you know, you can do anything and it's fair game. When you're a custodian, you need to respect what's come before and the original creator. I'm not talking about Vidra. I'm talking about Gene Roddenberry and what that <laughs> represents. And I feel that um, maybe some of the people who had a negative reaction, um, or, or 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 you know, to some of what's been done in in more recently with Star Trek, it's because uh, they don't feel that the certain people are good custodians, mm. or, or or feel they're creators and not custodians. Yeah, so. it's interesting. I, I think you know the the deeper your love for something the more you should be able to see it for what it is. How deep is your love? That's pretty <laughs> The deeper the love, the stronger yeah. the devotion. I think it's and about the... uh, three BGs low. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, this is great. And, and, and a very happy holiday to all our listeners, wherever you are in the world or deep in space where, I don't know, we're not on radio. So I guess this isn't going into space. We're only on the internet. So you can't listen to it on the International Space Station or- You know, Wi-Fi well, puts you, it you in the ether. So I think that works. It's not like a signal, you know, out. You see, that's the cool thing about like, your, your broadcasts of Talk Trek, perhaps a hundred years from now on Sigmai Ocean, they'll be listening. The, the, <laughs> The, the, the we'll send out a probe to will, make sure you're okay. We'll reach them, but but our podcast one will be gone. They'll be gone. Gone. And there's Perhaps. nothing Just we can do about it. All that lost, like tears and rain. Yeah. So that's that's it. So enjoy them while they while they exist. Thanks. Thanks we're we're going to have to put them on a, a a solid state hard drive and launch them into space ourselves. Or 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 we just play them on a radio and broadcast them. No, Pioneer. Oh, no, it'll take a long time. But... Pioneer, Pioneer three, and it'll have the plaque, and it'll have the record, and it'll also have a podcast of four three movie and Inglorious Trexperts. We'll right. well, it, it'll it. be called Peener. Yeah, that's right. Peener, that's what it'll be exactly. Peener wants to touch the creator. Is it a good touch? Don't or... touch the Peener. <laughs> well, that's enough eggnog for everyone. I think it's time to go, uh, or at least, um, uh, you know, get back to our quarters here um, because I think it's getting pretty late here on Deck 78. And Let's let uh, the servers uh, shut down and go to bed. Yeah, that's right. And then we can fire the rockets and 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 we'll be seeing you in February in the 430 movie. And we'll see you next week on an all new Inglorious Trexperts and bi-weekly when we can for deck 78 for our Trexpress plus subscribers, Trexpress.com take off one for savings and two Kadam for the Hebrew God whose website this is. So until next, uh, happy Hanukkah. So until, <laughs> until next time, I have Steve Melching, Ashley Edward Miller, Terry Doctor and myself, Mark A. Altman. I was going to say, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course, but that's the wrong show. It's the wrong and, show. And I can't really say fire the rockets because you it's already a go you already said and, that. And so uh, we'll see you in February. She has wonderful muscles.
Vex 78 is an exclusive podcast from Trexperts Plus.